Good afternoon and welcome to Aging Matters on Arlington Independent Media's community radio station, WERALP Arlington, 96.7 FM. I'm Cheryl Beversdorf, your host. For older adults, the aging process consists of physical appearance changes, less muscle and joint flexibility, as well as alterations in the brain and central nervous system. Because of these and other life changes, members of the older adult population are more likely to suffer from neurological problems after age 65. Additionally, as the number of COVID-19 cases increases, patients who contract the virus are also reporting various neurological symptoms. Today, my guest is Dr. Stephen Lowe a neurologist and movement disorder specialist in the Department of Neurology at MedStar Georgetown University Hospital. Dr. Lowe will talk about how neurological diseases affect older adults, including signs and symptoms of most common diseases and how they are diagnosed and treated. Also, he will talk about COVID-related neurological complications. And finally, he'll describe lifestyle practices older adults living with a neurological disorder should adopt to avoid the virus. So welcome, Dr. Lowe, and thank you for joining me today. Well, thank you, Cheryl, for having me. I really appreciate it. Well, sounds like we have a lot to talk about today. So as usual, I like to begin my interviews or our interviews with a little basic information. So explain to us, Dr. Lowe, What is the nervous system and what are the two main divisions? Sure. So the the nervous system is the organ system uh, that controls or regulates almost every other organ system in our body. So you can think of it as the main computer in charge of the body. Uh, It is in charge of maintaining memory, cognition, thinking, motor control, sensory function. And the two main divisions within the nervous system include the central nervous system, which uh, is composed of the brain and spinal cord, and the peripheral nervous system, which are primarily just the nerves. Of that, now, what are the principal organs of the nervous system? So the brain has many different uh, components, and uh, they include the Uh, frontal lobes, the occipital lobes, which are in uh, in charge of uh, vision. Uh, The frontal lobes are in charge of uh, decision-making, for example. Uh, The temporal lobes are in charge of uh, memory, and the parietal lobes are in charge of uh, motor function and, and to a certain extent, sensory function. Um, Then the spinal cord uh, transmits the uh, signals from the brain down to the various body parts, which then also go through the peripheral nerves. Very important part of our body, needless to say. So since this is such an important part of our body, explain to us then how can the nervous system be damaged? Well, so the nervous system can be damaged by many different uh, means. Um, the most concerning would be lack of blood flow, um, or oxygen to the, uh, to the nervous system and in, in particular the brain. But also um, the nervous system can be injured by direct trauma, um, infections, uh, both bacterial and viral, um, 
the brain can and the nervous system can be uh, damaged by degenerative loss um, and toxicity from various foreign substances. And then finally, I would say um, what may not be so recognized is that vitamin deficiencies and nutritional deficiencies can also lead to damage to the nervous system. I suspect that a lot of times people don't know about all of these different possibilities uh, in terms of how the nervous system might be damaged. So, so help us understand, are there major categories of the neurological disorders? And if so, what are those? Yes, there are definitely uh, several major categories within neurological conditions. Um, and many neurologists um, in, in that sense will subspecialize. So some of these major categories include vascular uh, neurological disorders, including stroke uh, and uh, hemorrhages or bleeds in the brain, neuromuscular disorders, which are disorders that involve the nerves and muscles and nerve muscle junction. There's uh, epilepsy, which uh, focuses on seizure disorders. Movement disorders are another major category. That's what I specialize in, and this includes conditions such as Parkinson's disease and tremors and certain walking problems. Uh, another very important major category includes behavioral cognitive and memory disorders. So um, Alzheimer's disease, Alzheimer's dementia um, is a very big component of that uh, category. Headache um, is a, it's probably the most common neurologic symptom that we have out there and and so it, it has its own um, subspecialty within neurology. Um, and then some other uh, categories include neuroimmunology, uh, which covers uh, disorders such as multiple sclerosis uh, and neuromyelitis optica. And finally, I would say uh, neuroophthalmology is a relatively speaking uh, new subspecialty um, but is very important because it, it involves the connections between the nervous system and the visual system and the eyes, and finally, sleep disorders. Wow, that's, that's quite a broad array of different uh, disorders. So given that, can you really describe common physical signs and symptoms of a nervous system disorder? Are or is it all over the map? And I guess as part of that question, I would also ask, does it vary among individuals, say women versus men or different uh, uh, races? Or how would you describe such a huge category that we're, we're talking about here? Oh, you're right. It's, it's uh, the types of symptoms and, and signs that we can see among people um, is is can be very, very, can be very large and variable. Um, I would say some of the most common physical signs um, that one can see uh, is uh, loss of normal control of body function. Um, so this can include sudden uh, loss of uh, strength um, involving muscles and body parts. So generalized muscle weakness or paralysis of a particular body part. A person may also uh, notice a sudden loss of sensation uh, or a more gradual onset of 
developing abnormal sensations, tingling, uh, burning, uh, pins and needles sensations, for example. Um, in terms of walking and balance, uh, people may complain of uh, loss of balance and difficulty with uh, walking in a straight line. Uh, they may also have uh, symptoms involving their face. So they can develop a sudden facial droop, facial weakness, slurred speech, vision problems. Um, so these are, these are um, symptoms that can affect uh, as we were talking about the major categories of neurological disorders. So these are things, these are signs and symptoms that we can see in uh, patients or people who have vascular, neuromuscular, and uh, neuroimmunological uh, disorders, as well as movement disorders. Um, but then, of course, if we're talking about behavioral uh, neurological disorders, then very common symptoms can include memory problems and um, loss of the ability to do our daily activities, forgetting how to work the cell phone, for example. Uh, headache, as I mentioned before, is probably the most common um, symptom that, that we see in, in all adults. And so um, that's, that's something that uh, people with migraine headaches, for example, will, will commonly complain of. Um, and yes, uh, these, Therefore, because of the wide uh, variety of neurological disorders and very wide spectrum of symptoms, uh, there can definitely be a, a, a large variation among individuals. So the symptoms really are dependent on, say, the cause of the neurological problem, where in the nervous system the injury is uh, affecting. So, for example, the brain versus, say, a peripheral nerve uh, that that control sensation in your fingertips. Um, other causes of uh, variation can include the speed of onset of uh, this disorder. Um, strokes, for example, can come on typically very fast, all of a sudden, whereas um, conditions such as dementia and Parkinson's disease, those symptoms tend to come on much more gradually and slowly, sometimes so slow that people may not even realize it until the symptoms are much more uh, serious. And of course, as you mentioned before, the age of the person, the gender, um, there are some conditions that are certainly much more prevalent in younger patients. Uh, migraine headaches, for example, uh, we tend to see them, the, the onset of migraine headaches uh, beginning in younger uh, people. Um, whereas dementia is more considered a, a condition that we tend to see much more commonly in older patients, older people. Um, and then certainly in terms of, uh, as, as I mentioned before, gender, men and women, uh, there can be certain uh, differences in terms of the likelihood of having a certain neurological condition. So for example, um, there women seem to have a, a higher likelihood of having migraine headaches compared to men. Um, it's not that men can't have migraines, but, but certainly um, if you were to compare the populations, uh, women tend to have a greater prevalence of migraine headaches. And is there a difference in terms of race? Um, 
Is there any variation there insofar as uh, nervous system disorders? Yes, there, there, there are. Um, it's um, the differences may not be quite as uh, clear cut, um, but f um, there are, um, for example, certain types of strokes seem to be more prevalent in say African Americans um, compared to uh, other races such as Asians. Um, but it's hard to tell because um, there may also be other comorbidities, meaning other medical conditions that, um, that certain um, ethnicities and races of, of people may have. Um, so, so there definitely uh, can be many different um, factors that can, can uh, come into play. What about emotional symptoms? I would imagine that if this there's an onset of the kind of symptoms that you've already described, certainly there are also emotional symptoms that occur at the same time. Oh. Would you agree? Yes, definitely. I, I definitely would agree. Um, emotional symptoms such as depression and anxiety uh, are very common uh, uh, symptoms that people with neurological conditions can have. Um, and, and some people will ask, well, you know, is, you know, of course I'm, I may feel some depression because I have this, you know, serious neurological disorder. Um, but there is more and more evidence to suggest that these emotional and or psychiatric conditions may be also an aspect of the actual neurological problem the actual chemical changes that are occurring in the brain, for example, can lead to a greater likelihood of a person with some neurological problems such as epilepsy or Parkinson's disease having depression, anxiety, obsessive compulsive behaviors. Um, one particular emotional symptom that um, may not get quite as much um, discussion about our psychosis symptoms. So symptoms such as paranoia, delusions, and hallucinations. Um, these are things that we can see in certain types of neurological conditions. So if a person who is listening or somebody who knows somebody has uh, some of the neurological related symptoms that you're describing, um, how would they decide which provider to go see? You said that you're a neurologist. Give us a little un better understanding of, say, how the practices of a neurologist and, say, a neuro neurological surgeon differ so people would understand, well, which provider shall I go see first? How, how would that process work, Dr. Lowe? That's, that's a great question. Um, so you can think of a neurologist as being a physician that mainly manages the medicine uh, treatment of neurological disorders and neurosurgeons uh, mainly managing the surgical treatment of neurological disorders. Um, neurosurgeons perform operations and um, uh, certain advanced procedures and neuro neurologists are much less likely to, to perform certain procedures. Um, uh, the neurologists you can think of also as doing a majority of a lot of the diagnosis of new onset neurological symptoms. But of course, there's going to be 
a lot of overlap and co-management um, with symptoms. Um, so I, I certainly have seen um, some patients who have been referred uh, initially, they, they initially first went to see a neurosurgeon and then the neurosurgeon um, after their evaluation will say, well, I think you should see a neurologist to um, complete the evaluation process. Uh, I think the question of, you know, how can a individual decide which provider to see uh, based on their symptoms, that's not always an easy um, you know, question to answer. I, I think probably the best uh, place to start off is to discuss your symptoms with your primary care physician first, um, who can then uh, guide that referral process. Um, the primary care doctor uh, probably have a better idea of saying, of, of deciding, oh, you should see the neurologist first versus the neurosurgeon. Um, and then also, certainly, if you if a person already has a diagnosis, um, then that that oftentimes will also guide the referral process as well. So a person who says that, oh, well, I, I know I already have um, a peripheral neuropathy, then they would more, much more likely see a neurologist rather than, say, a neurosurgeon. So you talked a little bit earlier about the various neurological disorders, but let's zero in about older adults. Um, some of those probably sound very familiar to many listeners, but explain again the most common neurological diseases among older adults. And I guess as part of my question, explain the difference between, say, these and common chronic neurological disorders. What, what, what's the difference? Well, um, I, I would say that in terms of common neurological disorders or diseases among older adults, they, they actually, there's a lot of overlap with um, common chronic neurological disorders. Um, let me list a few of the uh, neurological disorders that are more commonly seen in, say, older, adult, older, older adults. These can include uh, cerebral vascular disorders, such as stroke um, and um, bleeds in the brain, Neuro, neurodegenerative disorders such as Parkinson's disease, Alzheimer's disease, other causes of dementia, and peripheral neuropathy. Um, and seizure disorders can also be uh, common in older adults as well. But when you look at um, just in general, the most common chronic neurological disorders, um, these may also include migraine headaches, multiple sclerosis, um, neuromuscular disorders such as uh, myasthenia gravis, and um, motor neuron diseases, um, commonly um, referred to as, say, Lou Gehrig's disease, which is um, probably the most common motor neuron disease. Um, and then finally, one, probably the, one of the most common chronic neurological disorders uh, would be nerve root um, or nerve compression disorders. So if you have uh, complaints of uh, shooting pain down a person uh, down your leg, um, this can be due to a, a, a compression of the nerve root. Um, people can have carpal tunnel syndrome um, or sciatica. 
And these are all common disorders because of some actual physical compression of the nerves. And um, in terms of the differences between uh, older adults versus uh, some of these other uh, common conditions, I would say, for example, migraine headaches. Um, we tend not to see the development of new onset migraine headaches in older adults. Um, certainly people who have had migraines uh, for much of their lives when they were younger, um, the migraines can certainly persist into um, their old, uh, into older age. Um, but uh, the, if a person who is older suddenly, and has never had headaches before suddenly develops a new type of headache, that certainly is uh, worrisome and, and that should prompt uh, the person to you know, seek neurologic and or medical evaluation. One thing that strikes me as I listen to you talk about these symptoms is, is that, of course, we're all getting older uh, here. And so often, you know, you sort of wonder, well, what are the normal signs of aging? Because we don't exactly know what to expect. So is it possible that neurologic disorder symptoms in older adults could in some senses or in some cases mimic signs of normal signs of aging? And, and if that happens, how, how does that help you to make an accurate diagnosis? Sounds like you've got to ask a lot of uh, questions in doing a history and physical. Oh, What would you tell us? Yes, definitely. And, and I think um, one of the aspects of being a neurologist, I, I, I oftentimes tell rotating medical students or residents that um, the, a neurologist is, is very much like a detective. We have to ask many different questions to try to tease out um, the various symptoms and, and try to um, decide if, if what we're dealing with, if these symptoms are something within the normal realm of, uh, of, of uh, range of symptoms that a person who is getting older might have versus something that is truly abnormal. So um, as we all get older, there's going to be a natural decline in certain functions such as memory and thinking. Um, a person who's in their 60s and 70s, their, their ability to kind of retrieve uh, information um, quickly is not going to be quite as quick as, and as, as readily um, available as when they were, say, in their 20s or 30s. Other symptoms, um, such as walking, the quality of a person's gait and, and, and walking speed, uh, their ability to walk a certain distance, for example, and even posture of their back and spine. These all change as we get older. So you're right. These, these symptoms, um, these natural changes that occur with aging definitely can make it a challenge for certain um, disorders, uh, for an accurate diagnosis of certain disorders. Um, I, I would say that the way that neurologists can try to figure this out is um, by asking the right questions um, and looking at the overall course of the symptoms, whether it's something new that, that the person may not have ever had before and then suddenly they, they start noticing these symptoms. Um, that can be a clue. Um, and then also, um, 
doing certain testing uh, can be very help helpful as well. So for example, if a person has some complaints about their memory, that they're having trouble with attention um, and coming up with a person's name and, and coming up with words, um, then sometimes doing more formal neurocognitive testing can be very helpful in teasing out whether or not those symptoms are maybe within the realm of normal aging versus something that is more ominous like the beginnings of say dementia. Um, and so, um, and then of course I would be remiss in saying that doing a, a, a complete neurologic exam um, can be very helpful in, in teasing out whether or not a person's weakness, for example, is truly related to something um, neurological uh, versus just the normal aging process. Or as we like to say, our senior moments, right? <laughs> well, well, we well, say that a lot. Certainly, sometimes. I think some people say that. Okay, well, uh, we're going to take a short break right now for an important message. Um, just wanted to remind our listeners that we are talking with Dr. Stephen Lowe, a neurologist and movement disorders disorders specialist in the Department of Neurology at MedStar Georgetown University Hospital. And you are listening to WERALP Arlington 96.7 FM. We'll be right back. Welcome back. We are talking with Dr. Stephen Lowe, a neurologist and movement disorders specialist at MedStar Georgetown University Hospital. And Dr. Lowe had just been talking, telling us about various diagnosis, diagnostic tests, I should say. Um, and Dr. Lowe, give us a little bit more of a, an understanding of the various kinds of tests that are used to diagnose uh, neurological conditions. Sure. Um, well, the, the the neurologic exam is is really the the main tool that neurologists have in our bag of tricks. In a sense, um, we our examination is very detailed because we will um, assess a person's mental function, their um, the various nerves that are controlling the um, head, uh, the eyes and, and uh, lower face, for example, as well as uh, motor strength, sensory function, coordination of your upper and lower body. We also assess a person's gait and um, posture and, and balance. So the neurologic exam is, is, um, can be very detailed and that can offer a lot of clues as to um, where in the nervous system that uh, a person's uh, problems are originating in. But certainly, of course, with modern technology, there's a, there are a lot of different tests that are available. Uh, imaging studies, such as CT scans, MRI scans, and nuclear medicine testing uh, are now available to really help us uh, pinpoint uh, areas in, of the nervous system that uh, can 
uh, be the source of the neurological problem. So CT scans and MRIs are particularly helpful for uh, stroke, for evaluating for stroke. Um, there are physiologic testing um, that's available, including electromyograms or EMG nerve conduction studies that assess um, a person's nerve and muscle function, EEG testing or electroencephalogram. This is, uh, uh, measures the brainwave activity um, and, and therefore is very helpful for um, evaluating for possible seizures um, or, and or sleep disorders. Um, of course, uh, and speaking of sleep, where people can uh, get polysomnograms or uh, sleep studies that can evaluate if a person has some sort of unusual sleep disorder uh, that uh, is affecting their overall sleep quality. Um, and then some, um, a little bit more invasive of a test would be a lumbar puncture or commonly known as spinal tap. Um, doesn't sound very fun, but uh, it, it basically allows us as neurologists to test um, the spinal fluid that all of us are making um, to see if there's any signs of infection or inflammation, uh, problems like that. One thing that strikes me, because I act over the course of aging matters, have had uh, healthcare providers talk about some of these neurological disorders. And of course, I've been told that there is no cure. Um, Parkinson's disease is one example. So as an expert, you ask, help us on this in terms of the treatments that are determined for neurological conditions. Obviously, some there are treatments, some are not. So Perhaps you could give us a little example, some examples of both the treatments for those where there is a, a cure, and is there some type of maintenance, or how do you react to, uh, or how do you treat those conditions that there isn't any cure for? Well, that's a that's a really great uh, question and very important. In terms of the best treatments available um, and, and how we determine that for various neurological conditions, to a certain extent, um, the best treatments are individually determined by the neurologist. Um, but of course, there can be various differences in opinion. Um, and therefore, I, I always tell uh, my patients that get, obtaining a second opinion really is not unreasonable at all. Um, the best treatments for conditions as a whole typically are determined by um, large national organizations, uh, usually many experts in the field in, uh, so for example, stroke disorders or um, uh, uh, dementia disorders. They will oftentimes review uh, recent, the most recent uh, published uh, literature and, and clinical trials and then therefore produce guidelines and recommendations for what is say best practice for treating uh, Alzheimer's dementia or Parkinson's disease. Um, but then that, that then gets funneled down to the individual neurologist level and you know neurologists certainly can have as I said differences of opinion. Um, certainly in my area of uh, selecting what might be the ideal 
or best Parkinson's disease medication to try for initial therapy, there can definitely be some, some differences of opinion. Um, and another example would be um, some, uh, how does one treat a condition such as Guillain-Barre syndrome, uh, which is a neuromuscular disorder uh, related oftentimes to uh, recent infections. Um, you mentioned, you asked about uh, neurological conditions in which there are cures. Um, so theoretically, a, a Guillain-Barre syndrome is one such disorder in which uh, an, a prompt treatment can lead to um, recovery. And, um, and then many times patients may not have any of those uh, symptoms. Uh, Guillain-Barre can cause uh, severe weakness, paralysis, um, breathing difficulty and uh, loss of sensation. And if, uh, if, it's, if it's identified quickly enough and treated aggressively, um, then that a person can make a full recovery. Uh, unfortunately, a lot of our neurological disorders uh, don't have cures. Um, Parkinson's disease, Alzheimer's, uh, dementia. These are, we, we have treatments, we have uh, medications, for example, um, that can reduce or alleviate some of the symptoms, but over time, unfortunately, because these conditions are neurodegenerative, um, the, the symptoms tend to progress and, and medications are not always able to keep up with that progression. So one aspect I, I also find that's important for neurologists um, is that we are there for our, our patients who have chronic conditions that are progressive, and, and we try to be as supportive as we can uh, with education, with um, helping um, the patients and their caregivers and family members on um, what to expect as their neurologic, neurologic condition uh, worsens. Um, and how can we be there to support them in that general aspect? And Dr. Lowe, is it likely or possible that individuals who have some of these neurological conditions might also have mental health problems? Yes, uh, certainly. Mental health uh, problems can uh, coexist as part of the uh, neurological disorder, um, and it, it can also be a consequence, of course, of with dealing with the disorder. I, I mentioned that briefly uh, earlier that a person may say, well, yes, I'm, I'm certainly feeling very anxious and, and I'm feeling depressed because you just told me I have such and such a, a neurological disorder. But um, as I said before also that um, many of the changes that are occurring in the nervous system um, can lead to a greater likelihood of a person developing depression and anxiety. Um, and, and so mental health and neurologic health are strongly connected. Um, it's not always clear, unfortunately, how those conditions occur, um, but it's very important to consider um, uh, mental health uh, symptoms uh, that coexist in, in people who have neurological conditions. Um, one other thing I would say um, as an aside is that it's very important to consider the mental health of caregivers as well. So 
Um, because we are neurological disorders are many of them are chronic and progressive, um, this can lead to uh, a, you know, overall um, stress and um, affect uh, caregivers as well as they are trying to help their loved ones. So I, I think it's important that we try to treat both and, and consider the uh, well-being of both the uh, person, the individual, him or herself, as well as all their caregivers and, and family members. Excellent point. And I, I hate to bring this up, but this is part of what we're doing now in so far as uh, the interview is talking about COVID-19, uh, an added stress factor. Are you discovering that older adults who have neurological conditions, are, are they at greater risk to uh, uh, contract COVID-19? And if so, why? So it's it's not entirely clear, um, and we are still in the process of, of gathering more data from around the world, learning more about how COVID-19 affects people um, in, in different countries. Um, but the evidence that we have so far seems to suggest that older adults with neurological conditions do seem to be at a greater risk. Um, so... Uh, there was a recent uh, review article published in, a, uh, in the Neurology Journal um, in which they were looking at international data. Um, and they found that out of all the articles that were published that they, they screened and reviewed, um, about 8% of the 4,000 plus patients of, that were hospitalized and diagnosed and treated for COVID-19, about 8% of those patients had a pre-existing neurologic illness. Um, I, I can't really, uh, unfortunately, we don't have the information about uh, the ages of those uh, patients. So it was, in, in a sense, it's very, it's probably all patients, uh, both young and older. So we can't say for sure what older adults with neurological conditions, what the prevalence is. Um, not all neurological conditions um, necessarily present a greater risk for, for people to, to incur COVID-19, but it certainly makes sense that those whose neurological conditions impair mobility, breathing, and cognition uh, can, can increase that risk. Um, uh, so for example, patients who have cognitive problems like dementia, they may be less able to avoid exposure because uh, they're forgetful of um, putting on their mask. Uh, they may have um, some behavioral problems and, and therefore make it harder for um, social distancing to occur. And of course, there are neurological conditions that are treated with immune suppressing medications and therefore those, uh, those uh, patients may certainly be more vulnerable to infections in general. Uh, I'll give an example of, uh, of people who, are, who have myasthenia gravis or multiple sclerosis. Uh, they oftentimes are treated with uh, steroids or other immune suppressing medications, chronic long-term immune suppressing medications, and therefore they certainly would be um, at a greater risk for, for any type of infection, including COVID-19. 
The other part of that, Dr. Lowe, is the possibility of neurological complications. There have been a number of reports that have indicated, and and we're not just talking about older adults, but others who have in, uh, contracted COVID nineteen that they are they are or have suffered from from neurological complications. Is 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 this true? What what, what kind of symptoms are we talking about here? Uh, it is true. Um, the fortunate thing is that in terms of neurologic complications, um, relatively speaking, compared to other areas of the body, um, the neurologic system is a neurologic um, system is not as um, prominently affected, say, as the um, say the pulmonary system, but. Um, some symptoms seem to be rec- uh, very uh, common, such as confusion. Uh, we call this encephalopathy, which is a, a term to describe a person whose mental function is is um, not at their normal state. So they may be confused. They may uh, not be very alert. They can be sleepy and, and uh, not able to converse. Um, we suspect that that encephalopathy and, and confusional state is probably related to um, COVID-19 affecting various other uh, organ systems, um, causing, say, kidney and uh, uh, um, heart or liver problems. And then this leads to uh, the person being very confused. But there is also some evidence to suggest that there may be a direct virus effect on the central nervous system in some patients. It's not likely to be very common, but it, it, there's some, some evidence for that. Um, in one common symptom that has been reported um, quite a bit in the press is this uh, loss of the sense of smell. And because the uh, olfactory or smell pathways um, do go through the brain, um, we, this raises the question if the entry point for the virus into um, this, the nervous system might be through um, this pathway, uh, through the smell pathway. Finally, um, one thing that I, th- I would say that's uh, an important uh, neurological complication to, to raise awareness of is that uh, with COVID-19, there seems to be a greater risk of stroke. Um, compared to even other types of infections. Um, I I recently read about a study um, that was published by uh, the group from Cornell uh, Medical Center in New York City, and they presented some uh, interesting evidence that suggests that stroke, the risk of stroke, was about eight times higher in COVID-19 patients in comparison to a a historical group of patients hospitalized for influenza A or B. And so um, in that sense, the the risk of stroke um, seems to be more prevalent in patients with this particular virus compared to other viral uh, common viruses. And are these complications that you're describing now you often do hear about that complications of one sort or another are lingering longer in these individuals who have had COVID-19. 
would you say that these symptoms that you've described, the complications, are also still lingering for a month, two months, longer? What what have you seen, Dr. Lowe? It, it's not entirely known, but it but um, that it is possible. Um, we we unfortunately really don't have a lot of long term data on these neurological complications. Um, certainly for a person who have who has had a stroke. So, for example, if a person is um, dealing with um, the lung complications of COVID nineteen and also happens to have a stroke uh, at that time um, because of COVID-19, then the stroke recovery process could very well be much longer. Um, the loss of sense of smell that I, I, I talked about earlier, um, it, it, it is something that we ha has been reported as one of the early symptoms of COVID-19 infection. Um, but there have been uh, quite a number of reports suggesting that that loss of sense of smell um, can return in many of those patients. Uh, unfortunately, I don't have the exact numbers of this, and, and I don't think we know for sure. And, um, and then back to that uh, common um, symptom of confusion, a confusional state or encephalopathy, um, one, would, one would say that if if the cause of that confusion, say the actual infection um, with uh, you know, the fevers and, and um, lung problems and pneumonia, if it's treated then um, aggressively, then the, the confusional state should also recover um, over, uh, over time. So let's get some advice from you, Dr. Lowe, about precautions. You certainly see a lot of patients, and we're going to talk a little bit more about um, uh, patients being able to visit in this time of COVID-19, but what would you tell our listeners, especially if they, they do have a neurological condition or they're caring for someone who has a neurological condition, what are some excellent uh, precautions that these older adults should take to avoid COVID-19? Well, I would I would suggest that um, the precautions that um, that should, would be similar to um, older adults, uh, even those without neurological conditions, um, and these would be um, uh, uh, precautions such as avoiding close contact with large groups of people. The um, many recommendations that people have for social distancing, staying away from family if need be. Um, and um, avoiding um, exposure to um, uh, outside environments, uh, such as stores and grocery, uh, grocery um, supermarkets. Um, so people who are able to get their food and groceries delivered to home rather than shopping in person, I think that would be a very uh, good precaution to take. Um, and uh, of course, um, not just for older adults, but where, um, but all all people, if we could wear a mask, uh, wash our hands, um, practice good uh, hand hygiene, that would be um, those those would all be very important precautions to to take. Sounds like that's probably the same thing as lifestyle practices. Anything that you wanted to add there that didn't uh, get included under precautions. 
No, I um, I would just again really say the the washing the hands is is something that um, I, I can't emphasize enough. Um, we we many times I would say we don't re even realize how frequently our hands are touching our our faces, various body parts, uh, articles of clothing, um, the furniture around us, and um, and so when when you when we we don't realize that then it it gets much easier for possible transmission of of uh, infections and certainly viruses in particular. I wanted to I just had mentioned a moment ago about uh, the possibility of of people older adults with neurological disorders now visiting with their physicians. Is, is that happening a lot with you and your patients? And is telehealth becoming more of a, an acceptable alternative? And how does that work for you, given the, the symptoms and the conditions that, um, that you're dealing with insofar as your patients? What, what is the new world now for a neurologist? Um, that's a great question. And um, telehealth um, is something that uh, has been rapidly developed uh, for healthcare in general, but is, it, it is very particularly important for uh, older adults uh, with neurological conditions. Um, so if the neurological symptom or disorder is presenting a very significant problem or disability or discomfort, then it's important for, for, uh, for old adults and, and all people to seek um, uh, care as, as quickly as possible. And the telehealth uh, platforms that are available now really do uh, allow for that now. Um, I, I would recommend that um, if the symptoms are, um, relatively speaking, mild, um, something chronic that is not new, for example, or let's say routine follow-up of a, a chronic uh, disorder, then that's something that probably could be postponed. Um, but um, if, if there's something very um, sudden or new, sudden worsening, then um, an in-person evaluation is, is still something to be considered. Um, we're fortunate at, um, at MedStar Georgetown University Hospital that we uh, do see patients in person, but we also offer telehealth alternatives. And the telehealth can be an, a very good alternative for many, um, uh, but not all, but many neurological conditions. Um, and one thing I would say is that um, seeking some form of telehealth uh, uh, consultation, it's better than, than not seeking any form of care at all, just trying to um, ignore the symptoms or so. Uh, no, I, I would certainly wouldn't recommend that. One thing that you mentioned a little earlier about uh, when we were talking about the, uh, the issues that, the pe mental health issues that you're that the older adult with the neurological condition is dealing with, but you also mentioned the caregiver. I would just ask again, in your experience, would you, what would you say in terms of the degree of difficulty for caregivers of an older adult who has a neurological condition during the COVID-19? 
any suggestions in terms of what can help this uh, the caregivers? What would you tell us? Well, um, certainly for older adults, there's going to be um, uh, more potential isolation from friends and family who normally would be helping them. Um, and uh, some of some uh, older adults would uh, have have uh, caregiver aides that normally would be with them, and and because of COVID nineteen, they caregiver aides have had to be um, um, had to be let go because we they wanted to avoid the potential um, exposure. Um, the uh, older adults who have neurological conditions, some of them have been getting physical therapy, occupational therapy, or speech therapy for their various symptoms either as uh, you know going to, as an outpatient or even getting some of those therapies at home and and uh, unfortunately with COVID-19 that has had to be discontinued. So um, in, there's a unfortunately that that has that's that is the new world that we are living in right now. Um, in terms of potential solutions that we can have for for um, older adults with neurological conditions and, and then also as well as for um, their caregivers. Um, virtual visits are something that can be very helpful and, and the advances of, of um, food delivery through the various platforms like Uber Eats and DoorDash, that can certainly be very helpful. Um, and then um, grocery delivery um, uh, programs are, are also something that can help with um, older adults who are who are, are going to be more isolated. In terms of family and friends um, and other caregivers, if they are able to stay in touch remotely by phone um, um, or with uh, various types of uh, virtual platforms like Zoom conferencing, FaceTime, uh, you name it, those are all ways for family and friends to be able to stay in touch with, um, with older adults uh, who are affected. Um, and one thing I would say that can be very helpful is that if, um, if the family members are able to assist with teaching um, um, some of our, our patients with um, neurological conditions, um, how to use some of these devices now that can be very helpful with uh, with overall socializing uh, and um, life life uh, activities, food delivery, for example, setting up their um, various accounts so that the the older adults are able to just uh, be able to do more things independently uh, on their own devices. Okay, well, we're just about out of time. Uh, one quick last question: any good resources for adults to learn about neurological conditions that you would recommend? Well, um, I, I would certainly recommend um, some national and local resources uh, for various individual conditions. Um, for example, the Parkinson's Foundation, um, which is um, the, their website is parkinson.org. Um, and more locally, there's the Parkinson's Foundation of the National Capital Area. Um, their website is parkinsonfoundation.org. These are two great um, 
online resources for um, for obviously Parkinson's disease. But then um, other neurological conditions, the American Stroke Association has a, a great website, uh, American Epilepsy Society. All of these um, national uh, sources, I think, are going to be very helpful uh, in this time of, of COVID-19 for, for uh, older adults uh, who may have some have these chronic neurological conditions. All right. Well, I want to thank Dr. Stephen Lowe, a neurologist with MedStar Georgetown Hospital, for joining me today. And by the way, if you want to listen to past radio programs and watch Aging Matters TV episodes, visit facebook.com forward slash Aging Matters WERA for the internet addresses to access both the radio shows and the TV episodes. Aging Matters Radio is now available as a podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And I encourage you to listen, rate, and review the program there. I want to thank Robert Winship for handling the technical aspects of today's program. And of course, as always, thank you for listening to Aging Matters. And remember, Age is just a number, not a label. I'll be back again with you next week. 